KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, June 28th. What people who helped the U.S. military in Afghanistan are facing as U.S. troops pull out. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Coronado High will not be forfeiting their basketball game against Escondido's Orange Glen. Community activists have been calling on Coronado to forfeit after a racist incident where tortillas were thrown at a largely Latino team when they lost the championship game. In a letter to the California Interscholastic Federation, Coronado Unified School District Superintendent Carl Moeller says that they had reviewed videos of the incident and found no evidence that would justify the school forfeiting the game. Doctors in the University of California system will now be allowed to provide abortions and gender confirmation surgeries at non-UC hospitals. That's following a new policy approved by the University of California Board of Regents last week. The UC has contracts with religiously affiliated hospitals like Dignity Health, which often have restrictions on reproductive and transgender health care. The new approved policy says any contract with another hospital must allow the UC physician to provide whatever care they deem medically necessary, regardless of the hospital's policy. Gas in San Diego County is now at its most expensive ever since 2014. The average price from Saturday was about $4.26. Housing, food, and gas prices have all gone up recently, putting San Diego's inflation rate at 4.1%. That's compared to 2.6 nationally, leaving San Diego with one of the highest inflation rates in the nation. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The White House and Congress are vowing to help thousands of Afghans who face retribution for working with the American military during two decades of war. They're in danger of being left behind as U.S. troops leave Afghanistan. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says a special visa program designed to bring them to the U.S. is badly backlogged. Before coming to San Diego in 2017, Ali Rasuli was a translator working with U.S. Marine Special Operations outside Kabul, a risky job that made him a target of the Taliban, though he left the job to take a safer one as an accountant with an American contractor in Afghanistan, he still felt threatened. In two occasions, like two people came to me and said, okay, I know you from somewhere. He denied being an interpreter for American forces, but after he was approached a second time, the same night, we moved. I, I quit my job and I called my uh, employers. Okay, I'm now going to work for this company. The, even that employer didn't know that I, I used to work for the uh, U.S. Now that the U.S. is preparing to withdraw, Rusuli says he feels betrayed. He is Harari, one of the minority groups which is often targeted. He still has family in Afghanistan. So these are like the 300 commandos like Afghan commandos, they surrounded the Taliban a couple of days ago. 
Now every day he watches videos on YouTube of the Taliban driving unopposed into Afghan cities. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, absolutely, this is wrong. They shouldn't leave the country until we have a, a rational peace, at least, I mean, there. Rasuli was allowed to come to the U.S. through the Special Immigration Visa Program, visas set aside for people who worked with the U.S. government. Noah Coburn, a political anthropologist at Bennington College, says the U.S. depends on local contractors in Afghanistan, but has really never had a plan to handle the fallout when their lives are threatened. That's very much a part of, uh, I think, the way that the U.S. views these global entanglements, um, trying to keep them temporary, trying to keep them economical, but not thinking through what some of the longer-term repercussions of them are. With the American troops on the verge of pulling out, Coburn says there's a real potential for people to be slaughtered, especially members of minority groups who back the U.S. The Biden administration indicates that they will try to evacuate the Afghans to a third-party country while they await their U.S. visas. There is a backlog of roughly 18,000 applications, not including families. But the process is so slow that many more people gave up. So if I've got the Taliban threat that is really imminent, um, I'm going to be uh, not applying for this. Uh, and I've interviewed several people who have foregone the application process because it's a waste of time and waste of money for them. The Afghan community in San Diego is tiny compared to other immigrant groups in the city. The area took in tens of thousands of refugees at the end of the Vietnam War. More recently, Iraqis and Syrians. Not counting refugees, the entire backlog of special immigration visas is roughly 18,000. Armagan Karkar was a medical interpreter for the American military in Kabul before he came to the U.S. in 2014. He now works with Jewish Family Services in San Diego, counseling other immigrants from Afghanistan. Before they are coming here, they are thinking, like, when I go, everything will be easy for me in America. But the first year, it's difficult for them. Still, it's been worth it, he says. Back in Afghanistan, working with the Americans was nearly the only option for thousands of Afghans. But for many, that option ended when they were threatened by the Taliban. In general, they say that the situation is not getting better right now. So the only way is if peace comes in Afghanistan, that, that will be a solution. At the moment, almost no Afghans are coming into San Diego. A combination of the visa process being slowed under the last administration and, more recently, complications caused by COVID. In the U.S., groups who resettle Afghans in America wait for everything to reboot, fearing time is running out. That was KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. At least three San Diego County residents have died of COVID-19 after being vaccinated. That's according to our partners at iNewsource, who broke the story. iNewsource investigative reporter Mary Plummer has more. The cases are unusual and extremely rare. All three people who died were over 65 and had underlying medical conditions. Two of the people were fully vaccinated and one died a week after receiving the Pfizer dose, but before the end of the waiting period. The deaths were confirmed through county officials and medical examiner records. UC San Francisco professor Peter Chin Hong points out that nationally, only about 750 people have died of COVID-19 
after being vaccinated. That's according to the latest numbers from the CDC. It's the same risk as being struck by a meteor and dying. He encourages people to get vaccinated, especially older adults. In California, over 1.4 million people who are 65 and older remain unvaccinated. That's about 22 percent in that age group. That was iNewsource investigative reporter Mary Plummer. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. With less demand for shots, county health officials say they'll be closing more COVID-19 vaccination sites. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman visited a site in Chula Vista on Friday just before it closed this past weekend. He says despite the closures, the push for vaccinations isn't over. I've been wanting to get it for a while. At the vaccination superstation in the South Bay, people like Anthony Stewart are getting their shots before the Sharp Healthcare-run site closes over the weekend. I admit I was a little hesitant. Um... I uh, I just waited just because I figured I was young. I'm young. I would take my chances initially, and then I got a little bit of vaccine FOMO. And so I was like, you know, people are going out. I don't want to have any restrictions on where, you know, where I can't go, where I can go. Those getting their first doses, like Max Barra, will have to schedule their second appointments elsewhere. Barra contracted COVID-19 back in January, and it nearly hospitalized him. 15 days of misery, and then like after the fever and everything broke, I had another about another two weeks of dizziness and confusion. He has some level of immunity since getting infected, but wanted to boost it with the vaccination and is looking forward to some normalcy. Getting my life back, you know, being able to go out. Others say reasons for delaying were they were afraid of possible side effects, but ultimately chose to get the shot. I knew that everybody was doing it because I was before I was insured. But after that, I got pretty comfortable because my sister did it too. Just under 100,000 people came through this site alone, but the push to vaccinate people in an area hard hit by COVID-19 is continuing. Ah, we keep going. Um, even though the super sites are closing, the San Diego Latino Health Coalition is still assisting people with vaccination appointments and we're having vaccination pop-up sites. Sandra Mendoza with the Chicano Federation and Latino Health Coalition says teams of community health workers called Promotoras are still one of the best ways to get the vaccination message out. And they do a lot of the talking for us to the community, so they're very one-to-one. And they're at tabling events, they're at food distribution events, they're at school events, they're handing out PPE gear and providing resources for families. Um, So they're the ones that are actually breaking the barriers for the hesitancy. The county's vaccination dashboard shows 77% of residents ages 12 and over are partially vaccinated, while 65% have completed all of the doses. The superstations were designed to push through thousands of people per day. The one in Del Mar will stop administering doses on Tuesday, and county health officials also expect to close some additional smaller vaccination sites by the end of the month. And that was KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Coming up, the number of homeless people living on the streets in downtown San Diego has increased dramatically. Today, a joint city-county outreach effort begins to try and get them into shelters. We'll have that story next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Last year, people thought the efforts to protect homeless San Diegans from COVID-19 would help solve the region's overall homeless crisis. Yet that doesn't seem to be the case. The Downtown San Diego Partnership is a nonprofit group that advocates for a healthy downtown. It says the number of homeless people living on the streets in downtown has increased dramatically, with hundreds of tents set up across the area. A joint city-county outreach effort is set to begin today, which will include reopening some of the city-funded shelter beds that were closed during the pandemic. San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher talked about it with Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. Here's that interview. What is your understanding about why there's been such an increase in homelessness in recent months? Well, homelessness is a, a multi-faceted, really com- complex issue that at its root, Maureen, really is about poverty. Uh, Ultimately, people don't make enough money to be able to afford to live. And then it is compounded by issues of substance abuse, uh, of mental illness, of trauma. And it really requires a a multifaceted approach. And there's no just easy, just do this one thing and it all goes away. It takes really intentional, dedicated effort uh, over a sustained amount of time to to see progress. And it, it is very challenging. Is the increase in people living on the streets due to people who are newly homeless, or is it uh, that we're not helping people who are chronically homeless? I think it's both. Uh, you know, I think it's both. The old adage of, you know, in social services is, you know, if you stop someone who's heading into the river when they're ankle deep, then you don't have to save them from drowning. And I, I don't think we do enough of the preventive work. Um, But I also think that we have decades on end of not treating mental health and substance abuse in the way it ought to be treated. Uh, I think we have a a multi-decade failed war on drugs. And at its underlying point, we still have significant issues of poverty that while you may have a raging stock market and creating more millionaires and billionaires, your average person out there working uh, is is barely making enough to make ends meet because wages remain very low. And and I think all of these roll together to do the situation we face today that compels us to act and, and really compels us to try to do things differently than just the way they've always been done in the past. Uh, and that's what we're really trying to do is recognize the severity of the situation, the impact on the, the lives of those who are unsheltered, but also the impact on our neighborhoods and our small businesses uh, and our residents uh, to, to really try and try and significantly improve the situation. So what is this new outreach approach that the city and county is going to launch next week? Well, there's two parts to it. The first part is the immediate next week, which is we're going to have increased shelter capacity uh, because a lot of the shelters, pretty much all of them, operated under physical distancing or social distancing rules of COVID. Those rules have now been lifted, which gives us increased capacity. But in order to fill that capacity, you've got to have dedicated uh, outreach workers to really blanket an area, offer services, engage with individuals, and get them comfortable moving in. And that's the immediate step one. 
uh, that, it, that is, that is going to be taking place here in June. Step two is a program we're launching, uh, again, the county funded, but in partnership with the city, but also doing it countywide, which will launch in August. And that'll be what we call our C-HEART team, our community harm reduction teams. These are uniquely trained outreach workers, particularly to reach those with the most chronic substance abuse and mental health issues and engage them in a unique way. And, and for a lot of those folks, there is nowhere for them to go because of the condition they're in. And we will be opening new safe haven locations that will give them an open door, no questions asked. Let's facilitate getting them indoors and build that trust and then get them connected uh, with some of the services they need. And that program will launch in August. That is a change from, from what has historically been done. Uh, but again, focused on those most difficult cases. And we hope the combination of both of these plus everything else we're doing uh, can, can begin to yield some positive results. And talking about the teams that will be reaching out uh, and providing services to people who have chronic substance use issues, um, who will be on those teams? What types of services are they going to be offering? Well, it's really going to be a team effort. You're going to have peer support, individuals with lived experience. That's very vital for someone to say, hey, I've been in your path and you've got to trust me, it gets better. It's going to include substance use counselors that are, are really designed to walk people through you know, kind of the stages of, of coming to terms with the addiction and the options available to you. Uh, mental health clinicians, along with psychiatric consultation with nurse practitioners, it really is a team effort. You know, some of these individuals, Maureen, are, are 10, 15, 20 plus years uh, into addiction and mental illness. And, and it, it, it takes a considerable engagement. And, you know, as a county, we just wiped away decades of failed approaches to substance abuse. We just adopted things like embracing syringe services, uh, naloxone, harm reduction strategies. Uh, and it really does take a different approach uh, with these folks, one of compassion and empathy, uh, and one of opening a door and building trust to just facilitate, hey, let's get you in a better place and then let's work on a long-term path uh, to try and get you well. But these are very challenging cases. They are very, very, very hard and difficult. So homeless people, if they don't agree to stop drinking or stop using drugs, there are virtually no shelters available to them now. How would that change under this new outreach? Well, that's right. I mean, right now, most shelters and housing options for, for the unsheltered require you to be sober uh, or actively committed to sobriety. That's obviously a preference, but for a lot of individuals, that's not a reality. You've got to build trust. Um, and so we've got to look for creative ways to get people off the streets and into shelters um, in order to facilitate a pathway to recovery. When someone's suffering with addiction and mental health issues, you know, the standard promise of a hot meal, a cot, a roof over their head, that may not be appealing enough. And, and if, if we're being honest, some of these individuals just don't have that level of trust. And so a safe haven will simply provide you a housing and sheltering opportunity with no questions asked. It's going to be unconditional. It's going to be non-judgmental. But we also know based on evidence, it is the key to unlocking trust and getting people on a pathway to recovery. And so sometimes we have to do things that may be a little controversial or a little unconventional uh, in order to get an outcome different than what we've been doing year in and year out. As I understand it, police officers will be involved in the first phase of this outreach effort. Are you concerned that it may put people off and prevent people from engaging? Uh, that is a concern. That's a very valid and legitimate concern. Um, you know, if a lot of these individuals have been justice involved in the past and just the presence of law enforcement, not law enforcement not doing anything wrong at all, but their presence uh, can escalate the situation and create some trust issues. 
Um, and so that's why as a county, we've really moved now more than $20 million to build out our mobile crisis response teams. These will be coming online late summer uh, countywide, and, and we think this can help and assist. Um, you know, I think generally the, the, the best engagement is going to be those, those lived experience, peer support specialists to, to kind of work with these individuals, build some trust, engage with them, and try and get them uh, into help and services. I think that's the, the, the probably preferable path. Now, the fundamental problem San Diego has with homelessness is there are not enough low-income housing units for people to live in. Where will that resource come from? Well, I think it's twofold. I think you're right. There, there's not enough uh, affordable housing that's out there. Uh, you know, I'm moving. I've got hundreds, if not thousands of units that are under construction in my district, taking county-owned land and building 100% affordable projects. But the other problem that we still face, Maureen, is, you know, I see this. My wife and I and our family, we live in City Heights. You know, if I go for a run in the morning, I see people who live in their car. And these are folks who work full-time. And so we have two problems and that people who work full-time still do not make enough money. We have not seen uh, wages track with the stock market and, and track with you know, income inequality and differences. And so increase in wages will help deal with half of the problem. The other part of the problem is ensuring that, that rent remains affordable and there's affordable housing options. Uh, and I think we have to push on both of those, recognizing again that homelessness at its root is about poverty. Uh, and, and if we tackle poverty, uh, then we can begin to see some structural change as opposed to just backfilling that, that, that poverty with help and assistance to bridge it over. And so I, I think we, we have to really keep pushing on the issue surrounding wages and pushing on issues surrounding affordability of housing. That was San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.